0: right and left, they're giving up ground, they're leaving the tenets of the faith, they're stopping in defending scripture, in fact, they've lost the ability uh, to to stand and not be ashamed of the gospel, there's an onslaught of attacks, and so this is part two of our study on answering atheists, and I want you to know that the attack on Christianity is coming hard, fast, and it is unrelenting. And so this is the mood for Christianity in the United States. This is Steven Weinberg, an American theoretical physicist, Nobel laureate in physics. He says this, I think the world needs to wake up from its long nightmare of religious belief. And anything we scientists can do to weaken the hold of religion should be done and may in fact be our greatest contribution to civilization. That's the attack, science versus God. Interestingly enough, except if you're covered by tolerance, and that would be Islam. Uh, Christianity's under fire. How many of you know that? And so we need to understand what the tactics are that are being spoken against us. And what I shared with you last week are the four tactics that the new atheists are using in attacking Christianity and theism, and today we're going to focus in on one of those main attacks, and that is trashing the Bible. Speaking that the Bible is not the inspired word of God, and any of you religious freaks and nuts that think you believe that this is an inspired word, you are a mess, and you need deliverance because you're brainwashed, and that's the attack that this cannot be thought of as inspired and the, the Word of God. Many Christian churches have given up on believing that this is inerrant and inspired. They'll say it's, you know, it's a good book to live by. And we're talking about Christians who can't take the heat, right? And, and they're no longer defending the Word of God. We will defend the Word of God. And as Paul said, we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. This gospel spoken by you through the foolishness of preaching is the gospel's power to save souls. God has decided to put his spirit in you and use you as a mouthpiece for bringing people unto salvation. Wow, what an opportunity for us to be involved in that. But you must speak and you must declare the word of the Lord. And so that's what God wants us to do. Now, how are they going to go about trashing the Bible? The four tactics of the new atheists. I shared with you the four horsemen of the atheists at Dennett and, and Harris and, and uh, Dawkins and, and uh, Hitchens. And uh, these are the main four tactics that they're going to be using. Number one, science is supreme. All right? Science equals truth. What you believe in is Mythology. And religion is an attempt to believe without any evidence and any fact you have your leap of faith but we trust science and science is good science is true and science is fact all the sciences why well, look at the great sciences that were used to bring change to the world the the science of economics by Karl Marx right the science of sociology by Vladimir Lenin The science of biology by Charles Darwin. These are sciences that have improved our world. And the sciences of quantum physics and and so forth. And the scientists today who have brought so much, they're going to, science is going to save us. Science is going to be the answer for mankind. But don't you find it interesting when the science of economics and uh, of, uh, as I said, uh, Marx and Lenin and uh, Darwin and these sciences have come to save us and, and the sciences of uh, astronomy and, uh, and all these uh, cosmic forces that man's science is going to deliver them. And we saw last week that in the last 100 years, under those influences, through godless uh, social movements and governments, more human beings have been murdered than all the history of the world. We've seen that it's not true. And when you take God out of the equation, the value of human life now depreciates. And so science being supreme is the first point. The second point is they're going to use uh, ridicule and mocking. They want to shame you into the idea that you would believe that there's a God and ridicule you and mock you for believing a book that's full of fairy tales and imps and demons and talking snakes. Are you crazy? and to mock you till you would be ashamed to even say what you believe. Thirdly, they, of course, stand on neutral ground. Science is neutral. It has no other influences but the facts and truth. You, in other words, were born into a society that was Christian or Muslim or Hindu, and you were brainwashed to believe the the mythology of your day. But if you'd come to the neutral stand of science, you'll see for yourself. Of course, we realize they have an agenda as well, And uh, so we saw that as foolish. And then fourthly, the straw man argument. And we've talked about what a straw man argument is. It makes you look strong. You create a strong impression on your opinion when you present a weak opinion of the other person's point of view. So what the straw man argument is, is you misrepresent the opposing position so that you can knock it down real easy to show that your opinion is strong that's what they're going to do through ridicule and through the evidences of science and their neutrality of logic. So they are going to push us down every time. And I'm going to go over that today on how they're using the straw man argument to defeat what they say is in scripture. Now, let's start with a simple one, one real easy that you hear all the time on uh, in different YouTubes and different things on the internet and folks who speak and say, if the Bible can't get it right and say that the earth is flat, why should we believe anything in this book? I mean, remember, Christopher Columbus believed the earth was round, and he had to fight a church to get some money to, to prove him wrong. And so the Bible teaches that the earth is flat. How stupid is that? We've got photographs now, and so the Bible's wrong. And so there's the straw man that was set up. So you've got to ask your question does the Bible teach that the earth is flat? But Magellan said he had to fight the church. Ferdinand Magellan in 1480 to 1521 said, the church says the earth is flat. I know that it's round, I've seen the shadow on the moon, and I have more faith in the shadow than in the church. So Magellan knew, by observation and science, That the earth is round, though the church keeps saying it's flat, because your inspired text says so. But the Bible never said the earth was flat. Isaiah 40 verse 22 says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And the Hebrew word for circle there is sphere. The Bible back in the time of Isaiah said that the earth was a sphere and that the earth was round and that God set upon the roundness of the earth. And then we'll go further in church history. In 150 AD to 215 AD, Clement of Alexandria said that the earth is an ordered uh, sphere. Eusebius of Caesarea in 263 and 339 AD said that the earth is a terrestrial globe. Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages in 1225 to 1274 said this both an astronomer and a physical scientist may demonstrate the same conclusion. For instance, that the earth is spherical. So the Christians believed the earth was round. The Bible teaches that the earth is round. In fact, professor of history at the University of Southern California. Jeffrey Burton Russell wrote the book, The Myth of the Flat Earth. He said it must first be reiterated that with extraordinarily few exceptions, no educated person in the history of Western civilization from the 3rd century BC onward believed that the Earth was flat. In his studies, he found five exceptions in the 1,500 years of Christians, nominal uh, theologians, that said the earth was flat. The majority of Christians, and the church as a whole, decreed and declared, according to the word of God, that the earth is round, not flat. So where do we get this idea from, that we're always ridiculed for? I mean, Magellan himself said that the church says the earth is flat. Magellan had to fight them. He should know. But when you review all of Magellan's diaries and all of Magellan's writings, you can't find a single reference to him having an argument with the church concerning that it was flat. Where did this come from? It's a quote. It's a quote by Robert Ingström. Ingström who wrote a book in 1873 called Individuality, where he said, I think it was Magellan who said, and there are no source quotes, no references that he has. He made it up. And this quote is on the internet, and it's everywhere you can find it, saying the church believed that the earth is flat, and Magellan never said that, and the church never believed it. But wait a minute, Christopher Columbus We know he had to fight to get some ships to go on this trip because everybody in the church world was against him saying the earth was flat. At least, that's what we've been told. So when did we start being told this idea? Well, it happened with this book in 1828, The Life and Voyages of Christopher Columbus, written by Washington Irving, who gave us The Legend of Sleepy Hollow fiction. Washington Irving came up with the idea that there was a debate between Columbus. You can look at his diary and his works, and he was a strong devout Christian. The argument with Columbus was never whether the earth was flat or round. The argument with the church was the size of the circumference of the earth. Columbus wanted to find a quicker trade route into Japan and into the Orient to bring spices back, and Columbus believed it was only 3,000 miles away. Turns out that the trade route that he was looking for between the Canary Islands and Japan was 13,000 miles away. And if Christopher Columbus wouldn't have run into America, they would have all died because he miscalculated the circumference of the earth. The argument was never about a flat earth. And so we keep getting ridiculed believing that the church taught there was a flat earth. The medieval church, the church all the way into the first century and all the way back to 3 BC and back to Isaiah always declared that the church, I'm sorry, that the earth was round. All right? That's the idea of a straw man argument. Evidence that doesn't come from the source, but comes from outside sources. How many of you studied this in elementary school, in your history textbooks about Columbus and the church? It's in your elementary, junior high, high school, college level. It's all being taught. There are no source checkings, and there's no evidence for any of this. So that's the problem with this kind of uh, straw man argument. Let's go to the next one. The Old Testament is morally evil. More attacks against the law and God of the Old Testament. How do you know that God is just a mean ogre? He's mean and bad. And so the God of the Old Testament is morally evil, and the law is morally evil. Now that's the straw man. They put a poor caricature of God. But when you read the Bible and you study it, and you go, wow, why is he so mad all the time? Why are people being killed and punished? You need to understand the heart in what is going on in Scripture. And so they set up this concept. What cracks me up, what is really interesting in this argument that atheists use about God's evil is they use, in fact, they are judging the morality of God through their 21st century value set. Where did most of the Western 21st century people get their values from? The Judeo-Christian ethic. And so they're using, even atheists now, even recommend that we still follow the dictates of a Judeo-Christian law, but there is no God, but it came up with some good ideas. They value what is right and what is wrong based on what they grew up in the West knowing through the Judeo-Christian ethic and looking at scripture saying God's evil. Based on, his, they don't say this, but it's based on his their God's principles. Kind of a, Funny situation, don't you think? I do. How many of you ever heard of Dr. Laura Schlesinger? Remember Dr. Laura? She used to have a radio show, right? Well, she had a kind of a seedy past, but she got uh, she came into Judaism uh, and uh, studied Torah. And so what she did is she had a radio show that would interview people and talk to people, and they'd call with their problems, and she would reference the Torah, the Old Testament, and help them know how to live a better life according to the word of God. She got attacked a lot. She's no longer on the radio. And uh, again, the atheists kicked her out, moved her out, made her marginal and foolish. And there's a letter that was sent to her that ridiculed her, and it was then dramatized in the TV show, The White Wing. West Wing. <laughs> Might as well call it The White Wing, sorry. All right, The The West Wing. And so they acted this out. In fact, they kind of portray her in a, in a hot seat in, uh, where, with the president uh, in the West Wing. And they use these arguments. And here it is, the straw man against the God of the Old Testament. So I want to play this portion for you. Listen closely, and we're going to unpack it.
1: Leave they are confused. No, sir. Good. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 18.22. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I have you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter to slavery, a sanction in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always put at the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35-2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean, Leviticus 11-7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John? for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those
0: questions, would you? Good questions. Coming on fast, coming on hard, coming on strong, right? I mean, even President Obama has used some of this in his speeches as to which Christianity we should follow. Folks aren't reading their Bible enough, he says. So we get this, and it comes on strong against the church, against Christianity, especially when you look at the Old Testament. How many of you know that? Some tough. He's quoting the chapter and verse. How do you answer some of those questions? Let's unpack that, and let's begin to understand what's happening here. First of all, you need to understand the law of God. First, we know, as Paul said, that the law is good. Man is sinful. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. If there was any failure, what the law could not accomplish, because man was sinful, God sent his son to accomplish. Amen? And so Christ was able to fulfill the law that God added to the promise of Abraham to instruct Israel unto receiving the Messiah. And that was the purpose of the law. It was given to the nation of Israel. So this law is a covenant made with the nation and the people of Israel for the land of Israel. And they were to function properly according to this law so that secondly, they would become a nation above all other nations to be a light to this dark world to bring people unto the goodness of God. And so the law was provided to be a blessing and to maintain the blessings of the relationship of God and Israel. And if they would follow the law, he would instruct them and he would uh, educate them in a healthy society, agriculturally, financially, and protecting in warfare, and to keep a stable government. And that was God's purpose for the law. And in doing that, God prophesied and declared that the law was going to pass away when a greater covenant would come through the Messiah. And through Messiah, the law would be fulfilled for the covenant of Israel, and salvation would be open to the world. And God would instruct through his Holy Spirit and his word how to live under the glory of God. And so when you understand what the law is and who it's written for and why it's written you can begin to unpack some of these things and we need to understand that so let's go through this one by one and let's start with his first comment i'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery as sanctioned in exodus 21:7. she's a georgetown sophomore speaks fluent italian always cleared the table when it was her turn What kind of a good price can I get? Okay, so the mockery, the ridicule from this, really pushing that person into feeling disarmed for an argument. Now, he quoted scripture, Exodus 21.7, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, shall she not go out as the male slaves do? So what in the world's going on here? There's slavery in the Old Testament. But again, you need to understand the context of the law to Israel versus the context of the rest of the then known world. Next week, I'm doing the entire sermon on slavery in the Bible. So we'll, I'll go much deeper into that next week. But you need to understand one thing. Slavery in the nation of Israel is nothing like what America and Europe did in slavery here. It was atrocious. It was horrible. And it was Christianity that finally broke the power of that slavery in this nation. But you need to understand what is slavery in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel. The laws of Israel believed that if you had uh, owed someone, you were to work off that finance. There was no social security. There was no governmental aid. The system was based on indentured servitude. So if you owed someone money or you had a plot of land and owed the landowner, you would have your children go into servitude to that landowner. We call it slavery. They would call it servitude. It was an indentured servant. They would work till the debt was paid off. Now in Israel, that kind of slavery or servitude protected from abuse the law of God also goes on to say that someone who has slaves or those working off their debt for them could not abuse them or harm them secondly it protected the young girl from any rape if she was not married and needed job and needed money she could enter into servitude where she would be protected by that person who was over her if not, if she went out just trying to make money, she was not protected from anything that could happen. Second or Thirdly, it provided fair wages. There was accounting kept so that they could pay off what they owed. And if they couldn't pay it off in 50 years, they were released through the year of Jubilee, but there were regular wages where they, in fact, got food and clothing and shelter, even in their state of servitude. Fourthly, there was asylum for them. If their master was abusive, they could leave and find asylum in a city of refuge and not be returned back to the slave owner. Fifthly, equal representation in courts. If they had a dispute with someone they were indentured to and that person was abusing them or violent or not uh, keeping track of the record of what was being owed and paid off, they could take them to court. And so there was protection in this. It's not like the slavery we saw in the United States. It has nothing to compare with. This was God's way of supporting people who had no other way of support. They could become indentured servants. And many were doctors, lawyers, and educated folks, and not just simply hired hands. Let's go to the next one. My chief of staff insists on working on the Sabbath, Exodus 35.2, clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or should I call the police? Well, if you violate, and he, and he quotes the scripture, and it's true. If you violate the Sabbath, you will be put to death. There is a death penalty to it. Now, let's go to the Old Testament and see. How many references are there in the Old Testament to anybody being put to death on the Sabbath? For abusing the Sabbath. One. There is one account of a man being put to death for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Jeez, give me a break. Picking up sticks? Why would you be so mean? Well, let's understand the context of what the Sabbath is. Whenever a covenant is made between God and man, there are the words of covenant, the promise, and then there is a sign or a symbol that says you're in covenant with God. All right. Adam and Eve were in covenant with God. They wore the skin as God promised them to be there. They wore the skin that God had given them to cover them. Noah had a promise that God would never destroy the earth again by water. What was the covenant sign? The rainbow. Abraham had a covenant promise with God that his seed would bless all the nations of the earth. What was the covenant sign for Abraham? Circumcision. The covenant sign for the nation of Israel that God was their God and Israel was his nation was the sign of the Sabbath. Sabbath is the wedding ring of the covenant for Israel. If anyone was to know that Israel was in covenant with Yahweh, they knew because Israel celebrated Sabbath on the seventh day in the seventh year. And so they always the land had Sabbath, and the people had Sabbath, and they rested in God. It was so important that God, in fact, kicked Judah out of the land because for 70 years they would not keep the Sabbath rest for the land. That's how important it was. And so for a man to denigrate the very covenant and blessing of relationship with God in Israel... To go over the simplest task task of picking up firewood is like spitting in the face of God. And God had to instruct a nation of people. And so he proved his authority over the Sabbath by killing that man. One mentioned in the Old Testament. But what if someone did? Should we kill them ourselves? No, according to the law, according to Torah, if someone breaks Sabbath, you can't kill them it requires that they stand before a judicial system and government to offer a fair trial, which is detailed in the Torah. They would meet the elders at every city gate in every city and have a judiciary decision as to why someone would be put to death or not put to death. And so it's not the responsibility of anybody to put anyone else to death for the Sabbath. Basically, to break the Sabbath is causing treason between Israel and God. In fact, let me share with you this. This is the U.S. Code number 2381 on treason of the United States. Whoever owing allegiance to the United States levies war against them or adheres so to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort within the United States or elsewhere, is guilty of treason and shall suffer death or shall be imprisoned, not less than five years, or fined no less than $10,000. The American government has the same thing in its constitution and laws, that if you are treasonous to the United States, death penalty. So here we ridicule Israel for having the death penalty for breaking the covenant law with God, which is high treason against the nation and against God himself. So that's not really anything to to mock. Let's go on. Number three, here's one that is really important because we have a lot of sports fans in this town. Yeah, we do. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes someone unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? And we take football seriously. Right? I never thought of this one. I I saw that one. I was like, hmm. How many of you were tripped up by some of these, right? I mean, they're there. And you're going like, how am I supposed to answer that? Can I encourage you that not, there, there's going to be things that are going to come against you and people are going to have opinions and questions and statements against the Old Testament and against God and so forth. Some really difficult passages. And you know what? You may not have the answer. How many of you have been in an argument or a discussion two and la- two days later you're going like, Oh, man, wait a minute, say that? <laughs> you may lose the battle. But having Jesus, you never lose the war because you have prayer. And the main thing that you're to demonstrate above your intelligence and above your apologetic and your argument is the love of Christ. Because they may have more questions you have answers for, but there is one thing you know. Jesus died for you and he loves you. Now what are they going to do with that? And that sticks right here. (laughs) So don't worry if you don't have the answers for all these arguments. But I want to show you that as they come, if you'll reason through Scripture and understand it, there are answers for this. So what about Leviticus eleven seven? The pig, because it has a hoof cloven-footed, and doesn't chew cl- uh, cut, it's unclean. Now, how do we unpack this? First of all, there are two portions of Scripture that this has reference to. Number one, Leviticus 5. The issue is not touching a pig. The issue is touching an, a dead animal or a dead corpse. Then Leviticus 11 defines the pig for eating as an unclean animal. All right? So it's not that you can't touch pig skin. The issue is you're not to touch the dead bodies of animals that will make you unclean. And you're not to eat the pig in Israel that will make you unclean and so that's the issue and so God had declared these things in Leviticus 5 and 11 being unclean is not a sin there's no capital punishment for being unclean you won't be killed for this and so what does it mean to be unclean it means that you have a temporary status of not being permitted to to enter enter into temple worship, into the temple in Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but I don't think that there were going to be many football players wanting to go to the temple in Jerusalem. Oh, wait a minute. There is no temple in Jerusalem. So it's bogus. This whole thing is foolish. Let me point it out to you. It It doesn't translate over. God is a good God. How many of you understand this? If you don't know this, you're going to get tripped up when someone says God is evil and God is bad and gives you some of these stories in the Old Testament. You need to read in and understand the depth of God's purpose. God's a good God. Why do you think God said, hey, look at Israel? Don't touch dead bodies, don't touch roadkill. Safety, public hygiene for a nation that was wandering in the desert for 40 years. When you enter into the promised land, Don't do the things the Canaanites do or the Amalekites do. When there's a dead body, don't touch it. You'll be unclean if you do. You'll spread disease. So stay away from others if you have to uh, touch that body. So there's a big difference between a rotting corpse and a football. Besides... (laughs) Let me give you a real good example. A camel is an unclean animal. It has cloven hooves. They're not to eat camels. And if one's dead and rotting on the road, don't touch it either. But John the Baptist had no problem wearing what kind of skin? A camel skin. An unclean animal, but that was his garment. He wore it. So if you want to play with pig skin, go ahead. It's not a violation. That's not the issue that the law was dealing with. And again, on face value, you read these things and you ridicule people for them. But when you look into it and you see the genius of God, who is instructing Israel how to stay clean from sickness and disease. He's teaching them the proper things. Do you know what pigs ate back in those days? And how they were kept and the rotting animal corpses. So it makes complete sense. Now let's go on. Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John? Because he wants to plant different crops side by side. And Deuteronomy 22.9 says, Do not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield is forfeited. All right? So the problem with that is, there is no capital punishment for that requirement. Again, God's a good God. He's telling the agricultural community, people, don't mix your seeds. Don't plant corn in your vineyard. Does this make sense to you? He's giving them advice, all right? Don't put your wheat and mix that seed up with another kind of barley and put it in the same field. How are you going to harvest wheat and barley? They're two different plants. So don't do that. And he says, should I kill my brother for doing it? Again, there's no reference to any capital punishment for any of this. It's God's teaching and instruction for agricultural purposes. So again, a straw man in an argument. But we need to know the word of God, don't we? Sometimes they know the word of God better than we do. We need to get busy. Let's keep going. Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing a garment of two different threads? I love the way atheists and the new atheists, Sam Harris is famous for this, where they bring in children and relatives in light of what scripture says and all the babies that die because God doesn't care. And when you consider under atheism how many babies have been aborted, it's ridiculous for the straw man argument to stand up. So he says, should I burn my mother? Because again, in scripture, Deuteronomy twenty-two eleven, you shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. And my mother did. I better kill her. That's not in the law. There's no capital punishment for this. He just says, you shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Why? Why? Because if you make a garment out of linen and you make threaded it with wool, mixing it, when you wash it and dry it, it's going to just destroy your garment. I mean, thank you, God, for helping him out. And, 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 and consider that the high priest wore a linen ephod garment under and a wool overcoat over it. It's not about there's something bad about linen and wool together there'll be a cosmic explosion he's just trying to help them understand in fact he says this in Deuteronomy 22 verses 9 through 11 do not mix two kinds of seed together don't mix two kinds of animals together and don't mix two kinds of fabrics wool and linen together the idea of blending and mixing is forbidden because again he's pointing out you're a sanctified people you're separate from other people but even if you do these things your crops aren't going to work Because they're mixed and mingled. Don't put a donkey and an ox on your cart and try to go in a straight line. It's not going to work. And don't mix your fabrics, weaving them when you weave. That's just common sense and reasonable. And God is telling Israel these things. And so now they distort it, and they throw capital punishment in the mix for it, and we're going to kill you if you're wearing polyester. That's what you Christians believe. (laughs) Some go into greater detail and say that God is in fact also speaking about genetics and saying not to mingle certain animals together and certain vegetables and and crops and and so forth. That we're not supposed to uh, change what nature's given us. And I find it interesting because we have so altered uh, food products today with so many upgrades and so that they come to harvest quicker and they last on the lo- uh, shelves longer. And we've got more cancer than ever, don't we? And so it's kind of interesting. You know, the wheat that Israel ate is nothing like the wheat we eat today or the food products. And then, you know, trying to mess with the genetics of certain animals and, and creatures together is, is another interesting point. So what's, what's all of this about? It's that straw man argument And it's them coming hard and fast and ridiculing us as a people. We don't have to answer or be ready to answer all of those, but you do have to have a readied answer. A readied answer is, number one, I'm not going to argue Uh, with the same sarcasm and attitude that you are, but I have a ready answer for you, and that is Jesus died for your sins. Jesus loves you. The word of God is true. I can help you understand that. And though you have a lot of questions, let me study and I'll come back to talk to you. But please understand, God loves you. And I can show you my testimony to prove you God's goodness. We always have the testimony which cannot be trumped. I hate using that word; but it's weird. Okay. <laughs> Conclusion. <It's> ruined our. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. This attitude, this mindset, is built on shifting sand. It is going to fail. This government will fail. This economy will fail. This ideology will fail because it's built on shifting sand. There is one thing that will last beyond planet earth, and that is the word of God. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will never pass away. Stand on the word of God and defend the word of God, and don't be ashamed. Be ready. There's coming a time where more and more people are going to be coming against the church with these arguments. You need to have a ready answer, you need to have a defense, we need to be a people who will stand. And even these new atheists uh, are overreaching their position. Listen to what some of the folks say. Journalist Chris Hedges says about Sam Harris, his arguments are so childish and simplistic and his ignorance of world affairs is astounding. These are his critics. Rodney Stark, an American sociologist of religion, said, expecting to learn anything about important theological problems from Richard Dawkins or Daniel Dennett is like expecting to learn about medieval history from someone who only read Robin Hood. And this is my favorite by Michael Roos, who's an atheistic philosopher of science. He is an atheist. And he says this about Dawkins. Dawkins' arguments are so bad that I'm embarrassed to call myself an atheist like that guy. He says that Dawkins invariably comes up with vulgar caricatures of religious faith that would make a first-year theology student wince. The more they detest religion, the more ill-informed their criticisms tend to be. But... They are the most popular thing on the New York Best time bestsellers list. Their books come out. Everybody buys them. Their influence is pop atheism. It's the biggest thing on YouTube. It's the biggest thing on the Internet. And we are losing our children to it. Because we're not speaking. And we're not understanding the word of God. Jesus put it best like this concerning his people. He said, my people are destroyed by a lack of knowledge. If you don't understand how to defeat a straw man argument, how to come up against an atheist, there are books by the gazillions to help you. There are radio programs on every day that will help you. There are internet channels every day. There are, in fact, our top ten proofs that are available to you all the time. You can go anywhere and get the help you need, folks. You need to know this stuff. You need to pursue it and study to show ourselves approved. People are hungry. Young people are hearing this and they think this is a fairy tale and they've never even opened it. But if they would find a living epistle in you and someone like you would share with them the validity of this word and how it can change your life, you will be a help. And so let us do what Paul tells Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one who is approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God. You are approved by the Holy Spirit. He's inside of you. Now do the work and be not ashamed of this gospel and handle it properly and put out this word and get rid of the foolishness of these people By defending the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you do this? Will you? Will you? Because if you're nominal in your Christianity, you're not going to last. You're not going to last. You need the word deeply in you. And you need to understand. Because there's coming a war against us of ridicule and hatred like you've never seen before. But you will stand. Amen? So do that with me. Stand with me this morning and let us ask God to bless us.